Well, folks, this morning we come to the end of the book of Ruth. And it is one of the most meticulously crafted stories in the Bible. In just four short chapters, we've seen the absolute depths of human despair, and we've also felt the absolute heights of God's love. We began reading what seemed to us like a horror story, but now as we concluded, it it ends more like a fairy tale. Our characters were starving in the foreign land of Moab, but now they're home again in Bethlehem and the house of bread, filled with the earth's provision, protected by the city and the community, and best of all, filled with God's providential love. The funeral service Naomi gives for Elimelech in chapter 1 transforms into a wedding ceremony for Ruth and Boaz by chapter 4. And Ruth, who was mistrusted as a pagan and as an outsider and as a widowed Moabite, has become a celebrated matriarch in the history of Israel. See, this is a story not of just literary beauty. This is a story of theological power. All in all, this is a story about how God reverses sin and death to give life and grace to a desperate and needy people. And that's the most wonderful thing about Ruth, is that even though it happens hundreds and hundreds of years before before he was ever born, it points us in every word, with every jot and tittle, to the story of Jesus for us. It reveals a God who works behind the scenes and in the foreground to bring a family redeemer to a needy and a foreign bride. And that's the church's story, if ever there was one. That's our story as Maranatha Baptist Church. Because just like Ruth needed Boaz to be her family redeemer, so do we need Jesus to be ours. And that's what this season is all about, isn't it? Celebrating that Christ, who though He was God, became our family, became our kin to all of humanity. And celebrating that Jesus became our Redeemer by humbling Himself, by going to death on a cross in our stead. And today, as this book comes to its glorious conclusion, we see exactly how what God did in the life of Ruth and Boaz impacts us as Christians directly. This is not a story of happenstance. It's not a story of accident. It's a story of God's loving providence, even for us these many millennia later. And although this book is coming to an end, like the Bible itself, it doesn't end with an ending. It ends with a new beginning. See, whether we're in the book of Ruth or in the book of Revelation, like we're reading together in our final days of reading through the Bible, this final Sunday of Advent, we remember that the story ends not with despair, but with hope that a king is coming for us. So let's look in chapter 4 together. Now in the opening verses of, of, of this chapter, the story shifts. We've been with Ruth and Naomi, but it shifts from the the people needing redemption 
to the Redeemer himself. Tells the story of Boaz now. Now Boaz goes to the gate of Bethlehem and we read that he sits and waits. Now, the gates of even the smallest towns in the ancient Near East would have been the most highly trafficked, the most populated. That's where it's the community center is the gates of um, uh, the gates of any given town. And it's the easiest way to catch people in their comings and goings and their business throughout the day. And sure enough, the only other potential redeemer comes along Boaz's path. The one who's technically closer in line, the one that has more of a right, it would seem, to Ruth and Naomi's land. But Boaz calls him over to sit down and to talk with him for a moment. And then he calls over, we see ten other people. He calls over ten elders of Israel, people that have influence in the community, that, that set the history for Bethlehem. They come over to witness this conversation. He wants everybody to be there. He wants everybody that's influential in the town to witness the unthinkable. Because he's about to redeem a poor foreign widow and her elderly mother-in-law with his great wealth and status. Boaz lays out the situation for this nameless redeemer. Naomi, who's related to both of them in some way, by her marriage to Elimelech, who is now deceased, has a parcel of land that has come into her possession. Now, we don't know how she's gotten this land back in her possession, but it used to belong to her family. Perhaps ten or so years ago when they moved out of Bethlehem to go to Moab because of the famine, perhaps Elimelech sold it then. Or perhaps just way down in their line, this is a parcel of land that's been sold that used to belong to Elimelech's family. But regardless, it's in her possession again. Now, truth be told, there's kind of a lot of mystery surrounding this land and this exchange. We don't really know how she's able to own it again or how she would be able to bargain with, through Boaz, who doesn't technically own this land yet, how he could be the, the middleman for this exchange. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, of mystery to that. But what we do know is in the, in the story of, of the Scriptures, in God's law, he demanded that at certain times, even land that had been bought away from a family, must be returned to them. This custom was supposed to be called the, the year of Jubilee. It was to happen every seven times seven years. That is, every 49 years as a way to clear all the debts in Israel. As a way to free all the servants. As a way to restore family and belonging and status to people that may have fallen on hard times. It was God's way of resetting the community of Israel. And he meant it as a gift. Now, how often this actually occurred in Israel's history is, is a matter of some debate. But I think we're being keyed in here on how important, how deep, how radical this, this exchange is about to be. What real life and liberty is about to come from it. So in verse 4, the other Redeemer, after hearing he has a parcel of land that he could possibly redeem, he says, well, of course I want to buy the land. But Boaz isn't done giving all the stipulations yet. He's not done explaining what else comes with the land. He says, okay, great, you'll buy the land, 
Oh, and by the way, you must take Ruth to be your wife and raise up her children in the stead of her deceased husband. Do you agree to this? We can see him slamming on the brakes already. This rattles this would-be redeemer because he immediately starts backtracking. Well, uh, well, now that you mention it, he can't buy the land, he says, because redeeming the people who come with it would impair his own inheritance. Again, we don't know exactly how it would. There's a couple of options. Perhaps marrying a widow would cause problems with his own inheritance. Perhaps he worries that one day this, this child that is his biological son could take his mother's deceased husband's name and status and claim this land back from him. So in other words, he raises a boy with this widow and then the boy takes the land that he just purchased. Perhaps he's worried that his own son would betray him one day. This is the time of the judges. People are stabbing each other in the back all the time. But what I think is more likely, personally, is that he is marrying a foreign woman, a Moabite of all people, from down south, across the border. We don't talk about those people. We don't deal with those people. The Moabites are persona non grata to us. Perhaps he's worried that his family uh, would reject him, would write him out of the will if he were to marry a foreigner, an immigrant to the land. Now, I, I tend to think that's probably what's happening here. But we don't know. Whatever the case, the advantage of getting that land is not worth, in his eyes, the disadvantage of having to marry Ruth. So he backs out of the deals, the deal with all the elders of Bethlehem there to witness it. And Boaz and and this man, they take off their sandals, which we read in in verse 7. The author steps in here and says, For you that come much later in history, this was an ancient custom in Israel, they don't really you do anymore, but used to take off your shoe and exchange it with the other person as a, as a, as a symbol of a binding and legal contract. So the, the, the sandals are exchanged, and now Boaz turns to the crowd and reminds them, you're all witnesses to what has just happened. Boaz has done what nobody else could and nobody else wanted to do. He has redeemed not just land, but a foreign woman to be his wife. He has redeemed an elderly in-law that could be nothing in the eyes of the people but somebody that you have to sink money into. And the whole city is witnesses to this gracious covenant. What humility, what generosity, what love from this Redeemer. Not only has He given Ruth and Naomi a future now, but He's surrendering His own name and fortune to do so. See, Boaz is intent on bringing up Ruth's sons and another man's name. He didn't count his own name, to borrow the language of Philippians, as something to be grasped or exploited. But rather, his great love for this woman, he would surrender his own surname, bringing these children up as Malons as long as he got to be with Ruth. Verse 11, the the elders testify that they are indeed 
witnesses to this redemption. Praying that Ruth the Moabite, the foreigner, the outsider, the immigrant, that Ruth might become now Ruth the Israelite. Ruth the belonged and beloved. Ruth the matriarch. They pray that she, like their ancestors before them, would have dozens of sons, like Rachel and Leah gave the, the 12 tribes of Israel. May Ruth be that in the history of Israel. May she also become like Tamar. I don't know if you remember the story of Tamar in, in uh, Genesis. It's a scandalous story. Tamar, who was thrown away from the family of Judah, looked down upon as, as nothing. She became the mother of Perez, who continued the line of Judah and ultimately from whom our Lord Jesus comes. And in Matthew's Gospel, Ruth is mentioned right alongside Tamar, as well as Rahab, as well as Bathsheba. All women uh, who were outsiders, who were foreigners. They're not Israelites. None of these women came from the tribe uh, uh, and people of Israel. And yet God writes their stories into ours, into Jesus's. They were once outsiders, women left to their own devices, women that were disregarded and looked down upon by the world around them. But those were the exact people that God chose to be the grandmothers of our Lord Jesus. And that's where this story is pointing us ultimately, church. That's why we're traveling through it during Advent. Because Ruth, the main character, is an outsider. She's a foreign woman, but she's the one that God chooses to continue His plan of redemption for the world. See, one thing you read over and over and over again in the Bible is that God always chooses the unlikeliest people to continue His plan to save the world. He doesn't choose the kings or the presidents or the congresses or the corporation. He chooses meek and lowly people, to turn everything on its head. Ruth is a woman who couldn't save herself, not from poverty, not from death. Neither can we, like Ruth, save ourselves from the exact same things. But a worthy Redeemer comes along in Boaz. And an even more worthy Redeemer comes along in Jesus. Both Boaz and Jesus humbled themselves greatly to take on an unlikely bride who was their beloved, whom they gave their whole life to be with. But Jesus did more than just what Boaz did. He did more than exchange a shoe or share an inheritance or surrender His own name. Jesus exchanged His glory for our shame. Jesus shared the riches of heaven with us who knew nothing but squalor and poverty. And He surrendered not only His name, but His life for ours by being nailed alone and abandoned on a miserable cross where we belonged. This is how Jesus bought 
His bride, and this is how Jesus redeemed us, His church. What humility, what generosity, what great love from this Redeemer. But this Redeemer's love, we are swept, or, or, or by this Redeemer's love, meaning Boaz, we are swept up in, in the joy of this wedding, the joy of their union, the joy of her conception, and the joy of the birth of a son. An heir, a future, finally, Ruth is saved. But in the middle of all these happily ever after statements, in verse 13, we can't skip over this crucial phrase. The Lord granted her conception and she gave birth to a son. The Lord did this. But does this phrase sound familiar to to you? The Lord granted conception and she gave birth to a son. Do we see that anywhere else in the Bible? Folks, this should be sending off alarm bells, jingle bells in our head, even as it were. Because next week we'll be celebrating Christmas. A time in which the Lord overshadowed the Virgin Mary and she conceived and also gave birth to a son whose name is Jesus. The one who came to save His people from their sins. See, God is doing something important here in Ruth's life. It isn't simply coincidence. It isn't happenstance. It isn't accident. No, the Lord, the Lord, full of grace and truth, has done this for Ruth. And He does it even more powerfully for the world and Mary through the the birth of our Lord Jesus. See, here in this verse, and and the the second and final time, rather, that we read in the book of Ruth about God explicitly intervening or doing something. Now, Ruth is an interesting book because God is not often mentioned in it. Maybe in, you know, there's, you know, they pray, they may mention his name, but we don't actually see God directly intervening often. In verse, or chapter 1, verse 6, we saw where God is credited as the one who provides bread for the starving Bethlehemites. He ends the famine in the land. And now we read about how God is providing again and another kind of nourishment, ending another kind of starvation to a malnourished people because He causes Ruth, who we discussed is very possibly unable to conceive. Perhaps she was barren because she couldn't have children with Malon. She is now pregnant and the Lord has made sure that it's come true. See, Christian, God doesn't just give us our daily bread That is, God doesn't just provide for our physical, earthly needs. He also gives us our spiritual bread of life. He meets our eternal needs as well. He doesn't just provide for us for today. He provides for us tomorrow and forever as well. He feeds us and He gives us a future. The two times in this book where we read where God directly intervenes and the story is to give life to people, to feed them physical food and to give them a spiritual hope. Because God is the life giver. That's who He is. Now don't mistake what I'm saying here. The Lord doesn't simply act only in these two moments. 
But these are the two moments that we see highlighted where the Lord is, steps in and does something. But make no mistake, people, because he's behind every intervention and every happenstance in this book. He's behind every blessing and he's in every bleak moment with these people as well. He's there in loving control of all of it. Even when it seems like our world and our life is spinning out of control, he is there in the whirlwind with us. There's a fourth man in the fire, as Johnny Cash used to sing. And just as the men of Bethlehem praise Boaz, now the women of Bethlehem Sing for Naomi, and by extension, Ruth. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May His name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to Him. Although the people are thrilled about Boaz and Ruth, although they're thrilled for, uh, for Naomi and for this new baby, notice who the focus of this song is. Blessed be the Lord. There's some ambiguity here. Who has not left you without a family redeemer today? Uh, may His name become well known in Israel. Whose name? The Redeemer's or the Lord's? Exactly. Through the, 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 the Redeemer's name, through Boaz being well-known in Israel, through Obed being well-known in Israel, the story of the Lord is well-known in Israel. And although, again, the people are thrilled, for them, the focus is on the Lord. Because the Lord is the one who gave the Redeemer. It's the Lord whose name will be renowned. It's the Lord who has restored their life. It's the Lord who sustains them and us in our old age and who gives us a new life. The Lord, the Lord has done this and it's He alone who's worthy of praise and thanksgiving. And friends, whatever dark valley you may be in right now, I know we're only five or six days away from Christmas, but that doesn't mean that all is merry and bright for people. Whatever dark valley you might be in right now, whatever financial hardship you're going through, whatever family struggle you're dealing with, whatever health crisis, whatever emotional um, and mental trauma and sorrow you're going through, or perhaps you're on the other side of the spectrum, Life has never been better. Perhaps you feel like singing on on the hilltop. Everything's going great. Work is going great. Money is fine. The kids are all right. The marriage and relationship are fine. You're at peace. All your Christmas gifts are wrapped. All the cookies are baked. The the tree is up. You're going to go home and have a great afternoon. Whether you're in the depths or you're on the mountaintop, be assured that the Lord is there with you through it all. And He's worthy of praise and thanksgiving. So how does Naomi respond to this praise and thanksgiving? Naomi, whose name means sweet, but she wanted to change it to Mara, meaning bitter. Naomi joins in the praise herself because her life has been restored and her sweetness has returned. The women who were gossiping about her in chapter 1, is this really Naomi? Dirty and disheveled? 
without a husband. They're now singing her praises in chapter 4. This widow who thought she would never care for another little boy in chapter 1 now sits bouncing a, a bouncing little boy, a little bundle of joy as, as his grandmother and nanny in chapter 4. And in verse 17, something very unusual happens. The neighborhood comes together and they name Naomi's grandson, Ruth's son. They call his name Obed, which means the worshiper. I think it's kind of a strange thing that happens. But I think the community names him something like this because whether they realized it or not, it indicates through this child, one day their community will be united and saved. And because of this child, they will get to be worshipers, not of him, but of another that comes from him. Because one day Obed will have a son named Jesse. And one day Jesse will have a son named David, who will become the great king of Israel and her history. He'll bring peace and, and, um, and, and uh, stability to Canaan, to this region that's plunged in turmoil during Ruth's era. When all these tribes are attacking each other, David will bring a, uh, a peace that had never been seen for hundreds of years and will never be seen again in that region, might we add. And David would be a king, although uh, he was a sinner like us, that loved and worshipped the Lord and the Lord alone. But it would be not David who saves us from our sins. In fact, in the Scriptures, we see David commit some of the most shocking sins we could imagine. But through David of Bethlehem, another son would come. Another king would would come near and reign and usher in not just temporary peace on earth, but peace with all whom God is pleased forever. One day through the line of David would come another king named Jesus. The last verses of this book give us an expanded genealogy. A look where Obed came from and, and who would come from Obed. And of course, one day, hundreds of years later, a man named Matthew would begin his book. This book ends with a genealogy, and Matthew begins the New Testament with a genealogy. An expanded version of this list and a a genealogy that every person points us to Jesus. Folks, if there's one thing I want to impart to you today, it's quite simply this. This book, this season... This church and this life, this everything is from and to and by and through and for and about Jesus. And you will not find a greater hope, a greater peace, a greater joy, or a greater love than you find in the person and work of this, our Redeemer and our King, Jesus of Nazareth. Let's pray. Lord, show us the eternal, satisfying, comforting, restorative, life-giving love of Jesus, our family Redeemer. For it's in His name and His name alone do we pray. Amen.